Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Monte Sereno, California. Spanish for Serene Mountain, the city was originally part of the 1839 Alta California land grant of Rancho Rinconada de los Gatos. Located at the base of the El Sereno Mountain, which has an elevation of 2,249 feet, the city incorporated on May 14, 1957, to protect the semi-rural nature of the area that was under threat due to attempts at annexation by surrounding cities. It remains a scenic city that is entirely residential, with no commercial zoning, and has no sidewalks or streetlights. Monte Sereno is one of the most upscale communities in the Silicon Valley, with a median household income of $250,000, and home prices averaging $4.25 million. Monte Sereno is probably most famous for a past resident, author John Steinbeck, who wrote several of his novels, including The Grapes of Wrath and Of Mice and Men, at his home in what is now Monte Sereno. American painter Thomas Kincaid, known for his pastoral images, also lived in the city in the later years of his life. But in 2012, the serenity was shattered by a brutal crime that brought big city problems to this bucolic community. In the early morning hours of Friday, November 30th, 2012, Los Gatos Monte Sereno police received a desperate 911 call from the very upscale neighborhood of Monte Sereno in Santa Clara County. Officers sped to the gated 7,000-square-foot mansion where local millionaire, 66-year-old Ravish Kumara, lived. The call was made by his ex-wife, Harinder, who shared the mansion with Ravish, or Ravi, as most people called him. Police arrived at Ravi's home at 1.42 a.m. They found him lying face down in the family room adjacent to the kitchen. His hands and legs were bound together, hogtied. A police officer saw that duct tape had been wrapped around his head several times, covering his mouth almost up to his nasal passage. The officer tried to remove the duct tape from around his mouth in an effort to clear his airway. Harinder's arms were still tied up with duct tape. She was bleeding from the mouth and battered. She was taken immediately to the hospital for non-life-threatening injuries, and she received seven stitches to her lip. Ravi was cold to the touch and unresponsive, and paramedics pronounced him dead at the scene. So, Kath, you know when having duct tape in different patterns was very cool for young girls? 
So it was that kind of patterned duct tape. It was white with black mustaches. Oh, random. Yeah, it's almost like they stole it from a 13-year-old girl. But that was the duct tape that bound Ravi and Harinder. Harinder told officers that late on Thursday night, November 29th of 2012, she went to bed around 10 p.m. After she had fallen asleep, she awoke to a knock on her master bedroom door and saw someone entering her room. She screamed for Ravi, and the intruder hit her in the face, cutting her lip. He told her to stop screaming and told her to go down to the kitchen if she wanted Ravi. The intruder gave Harinder a piece of her laundry to wipe the blood from her face and then took her downstairs through the living room and dining room and into the kitchen. Harinder then realized there were more intruders. When she got to the kitchen, she saw Ravi standing with his hands tied behind his back, struggling to free himself. She told the police she saw people beating Ravi and trying to shove him to the floor. Harinder yelled at them not to tie him up because he was a heart patient and would die. She also told the intruders that Ravi had breathing problems. She then saw Ravi being forced face down to the floor. Someone wrapped tape over Harinder's eyes and mouth and tied her hands. The men shoved her down to the floor and then bound her legs with a blanket and told her not to move. She was told to keep quiet if she wanted to live. Harinder told the police that when she moved her hands on two occasions, someone hit her. At one point, someone tried to remove gold bangles from her wrist and it hurt her, so she took the bangles off herself and handed them over. Two men asked her where the safe and the money was kept, and her render told them that the money, jewelry, and other valuables were in the master bedroom. One man was left to watch the Kumras while the others ransacked the house. After a couple hours, she told the man to go check on Ravi because she had not heard him moving around. The man got up and walked over to Ravi, but came back and told her render not to worry that they would call 911 if anything was wrong. Based on the voices she heard, Harinder was not sure whether the man who stayed beside her was the same person who struck her face. She heard the voices of two or three different people roaming around her house. Sometime later, a man told Harinder that they would be leaving soon and she should not move. He said they would be bringing back people to her home and she needed to stay put until they got back. Honestly, if somebody told me that, the first thing I do is try to get loose. That's terrifying. Oh, totally. Yeah. But can you imagine the fear, though, that actually would go through your system? I can't even imagine. Yeah. I can't. Eventually, Harinder freed her legs, got up, and looked for a phone. All the phones had been destroyed or disconnected, except she found a hidden cell phone and called 911. And by the way, that was never explained. I don't know why what... this cell phone was hidden. Correct. Or where it was hidden or whatever. During the 911 call, she told the operator what happened and asked for help. She also said that she believed Ravi was dead. And you know, I got to say, Kath, using tape was not even necessary. They lived on six acres in this very wooded, rustic area. Even if I screamed at the top of my lungs from their sprawling home, in a million years, the next neighbor wouldn't have heard me. Well, and if they did, it would have been so far away, they wouldn't have known which direction it even came from. Yeah, honestly, it was very unnecessary to tape Robbie up like that. But don't you think it was also more of a power play? Yeah, they didn't want to be bugged. As investigators searched the Kumra residence, they noticed an empty cardboard tape roll and a piece of the black mustache pattern duct tape that matched the duct tape on Robbie's face. It was clear that the home had been ransacked, but there were no signs of forced entry. Cash, jewelry, coins, and cameras were missing. Also taken were wedding gifts for one of Ravi and Harinder's two daughters. In a search of the premises, police also found a pile of latex gloves in the kitchen sink. 
Other latex gloves were found in the kitchen cabinets and drawers, and police discovered a latex glove and an empty latex glove box on an embankment alongside a road adjacent to the house's fence. That's a lot of latex gloves. A lot. (laughs) During the investigation of the crime, Santa Clara County criminalist Tawny Mehmet received 67 items of evidence for analysis. The police department requested DNA analysis of 20 evidence items, including the multitude of latex gloves, which actually only counted as one of the 67 items. Poor Tawny. I know. She had a work (laughs) cut out for her. But since the DNA test would take weeks, investigators got to work looking for a motive. Police from the Los Gatos Monte Sereno Police Department, and that's a damn mouthful... made it public that they believe the attack at the Coomer residence was not random. And basically, Kathy, what was happening is the community was up in arms. Like, what's happening? How this happened? Everybody was afraid that their home was going to be invaded. And the police said, no, 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 no. This was a specific attack directed to the Coomeras, but they wouldn't say why they thought that. I get it, though, because six acres sounds wonderful until somebody might be coming for you. And then all of a sudden, you're very isolated. Oh, for sure. In order to determine motive, investigators looked into Ravi Coomer's background. It was generally known that Ravi was a millionaire and had many businesses over the years. He was born in 1946 in India and emigrated to the United States in 1970 with a degree in chemical engineering from Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi. Ravi was one of the first Indian-born entrepreneurs in the wireless telecommunication industry and started several cellular companies in the United States beginning in the 1980s. And Kath, one of the things that I read about him very frequently is that he was spot on at predicting trends. I was going to say, like, this is the very, very, very beginning of when cellular became kind of part of the public lexicon. Oh, totally. Police also learned that Ravi and Harinder divorced in 2010, but maintained a residence together. I guess they figured 7,000 square feet of house, they could have their own space. (laughs) Their own wing, at least. (laughs) Exactly. However, there were rumors that they divorced only to protect Ravi's assets. When the couple divorced, the house, the furnishings, the cars, the cell phone company, and the venture capital firm that Ravi owned were signed over to Harinder, which was allegedly done to avoid paying damages on a pending lawsuit involving Kankakee Cellular of Illinois. Ooh, name that episode. I don't remember what episode Kankakee came in. It wasn't Chattahoochee. It It wasn't Apalachicola. That's right. (laughs) It wasn't that. It was the Blackbird episode, episode 53. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first one of season two. Exactly. If you haven't listened, you really should. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. It's wonderful. My mama told me so. (laughs) Okay, the lawsuit by Kankakee Cellular apparently alleged that Ravi was supposed to have a management role in their firm, but court papers said he performed virtually no services whatsoever. The lawsuit alleged that Ravi used funds from the Kankakee bank account to pay for escort services, purchasing condominiums for his female companions, and other personal expenses. In return, Coomer accused two executives of trying to embezzle money from him. It was reported that the case was later dismissed, but there was never any details of whether or not there was an actual settlement. Almost three weeks after Ravi Coomer's murder, on December 19, 2012, Raven Dixon was arrested and charged as an accessory to his murder. Now, what's interesting here, Kath, is that we were trying to figure out maybe how the police went after her. Right. But here's what we do know. Yes. Is that Raven Dixon was a prostitute. And as we just said, Ravi was known to frequent prostitutes. Right. 
We also know that when police took Robbie's computer out of the home, they found at least one other prostitute's cell phone. The contents had been downloaded onto Robbie's computer. So the assumption, of course, then, is that Raven Dixon was connected to him that way. Right. She was actually arrested for solicitation and drug possession. Correct. I personally believe they had a beat on her. They were probably following her looking for an excuse because I believe this was the gal who was arrested for propositioning an undercover police officer. And I believe she was also currently somebody who Ravi saw on a regular basis. Correct. We have a lot of supposition, but go with us. We do know that she was his latest gal. True. So Raven was arrested, and as Kathy mentioned, it was for drug possession and solicitation, but we believe that this was done because she clearly had an ongoing contact with Ravi. She would know more things, and one of the things I read is that police actually at this point assumed that because he was so frequently in the company of prostitutes, that one of them had totally sold him out, and this robbery was something the prostitute had planned in conjunction with other people to make some money. So I think they were probably looking for somebody to rat out someone else or rat out something else they knew. Right. So she was charged with accessory to murder and they were hoping she'd sing like a canary. Now, we're not sure if she actually rolled on anybody at this point, but eight days later, the police actually started making a few more arrests. We're now at the end of December of 2012. This is about a month after Ravi was murdered and the DNA evidence has started to come back. Based on this, police were able to make several other arrests within the next few weeks. On December 27, 2012, 22-year-old Javier Garcia was arrested in Oakland, California and charged with Ravi's murder. Garcia told police that he had never been to Monte Serino and had never seen Harinder or Ravi. Two days later, authorities announced the arrest of 22-year-old D'Angelo Austin, also for Ravi's murder. Garcia and Austin's arrests were a direct result of DNA found on several of the latex gloves left behind by the intruders that were found by police in the Coomer's kitchen sink. Both men were charged with murder and robbery and also faced a gang enhancement charge. It was kind of crazy, Kath. You know, it's like we saw those crime scene photos. There were a pile of gloves in the sink. It literally looked like there were 15 to 20 gloves. I was going to go 20 to 30. So yeah, there was a lot of gloves. Mm Mm-hmm. Three and a half weeks after Ravi Coomer was killed, police arrested a homeless man named Lucas Anderson for Coomer's murder. It was his DNA that criminalist Mehmet found on Ravi's fingernail, and investigators believe Ravi struggled with Lucas as he was tied up. Santa Clara County Public Defender Kelly Kulik was assigned to the case. As she went over the DNA results with 26-year-old Lucas, he told her he did not have any memory of committing the crime. He said it wasn't like him to do things like that, but maybe he did because he was always drunk and it affected his memory. Corporal Aaron Lunsford of the Los Gatos Monte Serino Police Department was the lead investigator assigned to Ravi Coomer's murder. Within weeks of learning about Austin and Garcia being linked to the crime scene through DNA, Corporal Lunsford was able to collect additional evidence that implicated the two accused men and connected them to each other. However, unlike Garcia and Austin, Corporal Lunsford had a difficult time connecting Lucas Anderson to the crime or to his co-defendants. There were no cell phone records that showed he was in Monte Serino that night, and he was not associated with the gang. Lucas's rap sheet showed petty crimes, drunken public, riding a bike under the influence, and probation violations. But there was something on his rap sheet that drew Corporal Lunsford's attention. 
In the past, Lucas had been arrested for felony residential burglary, and this is where Lunsford thought he found the link. One year earlier, Lucas was in the same jail as a friend of Austin's, and this guy's name was Sean Hampton. Corporal Lunsford believed that when Austin was planning the break-in, he was probably looking for someone local who had experience committing burglaries, so he turned to his friend Sean, who hooked him up with Lucas. When Hampton was granted parole, there was a stipulation that required him to wear an ankle monitor at all times. So Corporal Lunsford checked those records, and it showed that two days before Ravi's murder, Hampton drove to San Jose and made a couple of stops in the downtown area near where the homeless Lucas was known to hang out. But when public defender Kulik looked into the felony arrest, it was clear to her that Lucas was not somebody you'd want to add to your burglary crew. According to the police report, Lucas was drunk and had broken the front window of a home and tried to crawl through it. The horrified resident pushed him back through the window along with his blankets. Police found Lucas a few minutes later standing on the sidewalk bleeding. Though nothing had been stolen, he was charged with a felony and pleaded no contest. As a result, his DNA was added to the state criminal database. It made no sense to his public defender, Kelly Kulik, that Lucas was involved in this crime. He was a homeless alcoholic, was not tied to any gangs, and did not have a violent history. But because his DNA was found at the scene, and because he had no recollection with which he could help her, she knew she had an uphill battle proving Lucas was not involved in Ravi Kumar's murder. Since Lucas's murder charge could potentially carry the death penalty, Public defender Kelly Kulik assigned an investigator to pull everything pertinent to Lucas's medical history, including his mental health, in case they had to ask for leniency during sentencing. A month after Lucas was arrested and put in jail, the investigator gave attorney Kulik a stack of Lucas's medical records, telling her, read these now. The medical records showed that Lucas was a regular patient at county hospitals, the most recent trip was when Lucas was taken to Valley Medical Center, where he was declared inebriated nearly to the point of unconsciousness. Now, Kath, get this. His blood alcohol test showed a 0. 0.40. That's incredible and would kill most people. <laughs> Absolutely. It is five times the legal limit for driving drunk, but it was also the equivalent of consuming 21 beers. That's incredible. And unsurprisingly, he was admitted to the hospital that night to detox. It's funny, they, they call it detox, but it was more like, we're just going to take the edge off your wasted self. This was not a detox. No, you know? it wasn't. When he was released the following morning, the comment was that he was more sober than he had been the <laughs> night before. I love it. There's no way you sleep that often. He, know, he was 10, down to hours. like a 0.25. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the date of that hospital stay was November 29th, 2012, the day of Ravi Kumra's home invasion. The admission and release papers were signed with the date and time by the doctor and hospital staff. Knowing that the police and the district attorney's office would look for holes in the alibi, public defender Kulik and her investigator systematically retraced Lucas's day. Lucas was only minimally helpful because he had a very hazy recollection, shall we call it, mm -hmm. of what he had done that night. But they were able to piece together his evening beginning just before 8 p.m. on the night of November 29th. They found a police report that showed at 7.45 p.m. a 7-Eleven clerk called police to complain that Lucas was panhandling. By the time police arrived, Lucas had already left. 
four blocks east of the 7-Eleven, Kulik and the investigator learned from a clerk at SNS Market that Lucas sat down in front of the store about 8.15 p.m. He was already noticeably drunk and, over the course of those few hours, got even drunker. According to the clerk, a couple of hours later, Lucas walked into the store and collapsed. The clerk called 911 and the police arrived first, followed by the San Jose Fire Department. A paramedic with the fire department who was on the scene told attorney Kulik that he had actually picked up Lucas drunk so often that Kathy had memorized Lucas's birth date by heart. Lucas was transported to the hospital and according to his hospital records, he was admitted at 1045 p.m. Harinder Kumra told police the men who killed Ravi were in their house sometime between 1130 p.m. on November 29th and 1.30 a.m. on November 30th. The doctor who treated Lucas said he remained in bed throughout the night, meaning there was no way Lucas Anderson was involved in the robbery and murder of Ravish Kumra. Public defender Kulik called the district attorney's office and Corporal Lunsford to share what her investigator found. And Kath, it was actually Corporal Lunsford who eventually figured out how Lucas's DNA was found on Ravi's fingernail. And remember, this was fingernail, not fingernails. Right. Lunsford was reading through Lucas's medical records and recognized the names of the paramedics from Ravi's case files. It turned out that three hours after picking up Lucas in their ambulance, the same two paramedics responded to the Coomer mansion in the same ambulance where they checked Ravi's vitals and then transported him to the morgue. The prosecutor's defense attorney and the police all eventually agreed that somehow the paramedics transferred Lucas's DNA from San Jose, where he was picked up, to Monte Serino, where they attended to Ravi. District Attorney Jeff Rosen postulated that it was a pulse exhibitor that was slipped over both patients' fingers that transferred the DNA, while public defender Kulik thought it could be from the paramedics' uniforms or maybe a different piece of equipment. Either way, five months after being arrested in May of 2013, all charges against Lucas Anderson were dropped and he was released from jail. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. We're crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. This was fascinating. And this story got so much traction because it was the first time that somebody who had been charged as a defendant in a murder was exonerated by unimpeachable evidence, in this case, the medical records that showed the DNA at the crime scene was transfer DNA. And the public defender, Kelly Kulik, was invited to give speeches on the topic. Articles were written on the topic in scientific journals. There were a lot. Like if you Google framed by his own DNA, Lucas Anderson's case is going to come up. It made huge news. Well, really, as it should, too. Oh, totally. I mean, the fact that your DNA is at a crime scene and you yourself can't figure out how it got there. That's terrifying. And as part of researching this episode, I saw a couple of statistics that said usually it's around 95 percent of the time that juries don't question the DNA. Correct. Now, I do have one other thing to add, though, to this. So also while I was doing research for this, Kathy, I came across this really unusual case in Heilbronn, Germany. Now, we haven't talked about it yet, but in my trip of places I've lived, because apparently I haven't lived all that many places, but I did live in Germany for (laughs) a time. (laughs) What do you mean you haven't lived in? Exactly. (laughs) You did live in Germany. So if I annoyingly say some words as a German word, like that's just the way it is, because Kathy's husband would always make fun of me for saying Dachau instead of Dachau. Right. (laughs) So anyways, I will try to limit it, but you know can't help it sometimes. It started back in 1993 when a 62-year-old woman was found dead in her house in the town of Eder Oberstein, and she'd been strangled by a wire that was from a bouquet of flowers that was discovered near her body. Police couldn't figure out what happened, but they were able to get DNA from the scene. And this is long enough ago, all they could tell from it is that it was a female. Fast forward to 2007, and this unknown DNA profile has taken part in more than 40 crimes. Wow. Stretching from France to Austria to Germany. Wow. And the police are baffled, right? Because no two crimes were the same. All were murders and robberies, but the victim types, the location, and the MOs were always different. So even though this started in 1993, there had been like an eight-year gap before more crimes were connected to this unknown DNA profile. But in April of 2007, in Heilbronn, Germany, a police officer was murdered as she sat in her patrol car. The 22-year-old officer, her name was Michelle Kisaveta. Okay. <laughs> That's where I get annoying. <laughs> she and her partner were in the car having lunch. Somebody got into the back seat and shot them both. 
Now, the partner did not die, but he couldn't give any information about who might have done this. Investigators began referring to the person with this DNA profile as the Phantom of Heilbronn. So in great German tradition, and I say this as a German, they got very technical, very orderly and decided to form a task force that they were going to find out who this person was. They named it Parkplatz, which means parking lot. And I'm assuming it's because the crime. So they might be organized, but they have really bad imaginations. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, they actually even offered a 300,000 euro reward for any information that would lead to the capture and arrest of this person. Now the task force members were looking into the murder of the officer and comparing all of the 40 plus crimes linked by this DNA profile. They were able to find the one common denominator all of these sites had. All of the police departments used the same cotton swab from the same factory. Even though these swabs were sterile, they were not certified for use for human DNA collection. Oh. With this knowledge, investigators took DNA samples from the factory workers and found the person who matched the profile. The Phantom of Heilbronn was not real and was not a criminal. The DNA belonged to a female who worked at the factory. That is crazy. Isn't it? That is crazy. All from contact DNA. That's one of the things like in the Lucas Anderson case, when I was reading articles about the touch DNA, they said they've done studies where they'll put people around a table and they'll all drink out of the same pitcher, for example, water pitcher. They'll all pour water from the water pitcher. People who did not touch each other, but touch the same pitcher, transferred their skin cell DNA to other people. So they were talking about, you know, third party contact and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, it is a miracle that Lucas got out of jail. Honestly, thank God he had such an airtight alibi for where he was supposed to be, because otherwise we would be talking about him in a whole different section of this podcast. For sure. On February 22nd, 2013, another person was charged in the home invasion and murder of Ravi Kumra at his Montessorino mansion. Katrina Fritz another prostitute connected to Ravi, was arraigned on murder and robbery charges. This was the prostitute whose cell phone had been downloaded onto Ravi's computer, and that's how police obviously became aware of her. So once Lucas Anderson was released, the prosecution's case proceeded against the four remaining co-defendants, Raven Dixon, Katrina Fritz, Javier Garcia, and D'Angelo Austin, with the latter three being charged with first-degree murder, robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, making criminal threats, and false imprisonment for the home invasion and murder of Ravi Kumra. However, in June of 2013, all charges against Raven Dixon in connection with Ravi Kumra were dropped. So she was the prostitute charged as an accessory, but they couldn't find anything that actually connected her to the crime, so they dismissed the charges. Now at this point, there's three of them. There's Katrina Fritz, D'Angelo Austin, and Javier Garcia. After her preliminary hearing, Katrina Fritz agreed to be interviewed by investigators. The story she told them implicated herself and three others. The third man was 25-year-old Marcellus Drummer, who was arrested on March 3, 2014, and also charged with Ravi's murder. So this is little under a year and a half from the murder itself, and this is the first time Marcellus is brought into it. And Kath, what I read in the newspaper was that Katrina and Austin had known this young man for 10 years. Katrina's cooperation ultimately led to a plea deal. She agreed to testify against the three men in exchange for reduced charges. She pleaded guilty to robbery and false imprisonment and admitted that she committed the crimes for the benefit of a criminal street gang with a maximum of a 17-year sentence. 
Now, Kath, at the time, she wasn't sentenced. They hadn't agreed to her sentencing. And of course, the prosecution said that sentencing was not contingent upon her cooperation, but it always is. (laughs) Well, right, because I think they even waited to sentence until after all trials. Correct. But she was held in jail pending the trials. And essentially, the benefit to her is that the district attorney dismissed the murder charge against her. All of these people were charged with felony murder, which basically meant in the commission of certain enumerated dangerous felonies, you are going to be guilty of murder, even if it was not your hand who did the act. What's interesting, Kathy, is I did a California inmate locator search. Mm -hmm. She's not currently in jail in California. I saw that as well. And the weird thing is I didn't see any newspaper articles about her since 2014. Right. But one of the things I do have to say is in one of the articles that I read, Kath, the prosecutor, whose name is Kevin Smith, was talking about reducing her charges. And he was quoted as saying that she had a hard life. And he was talking about her role as a prostitute. He mentioned the fact that she had a small child. And he also mentioned the fact that she was the sole and exclusive provider of her disabled older brother. Wow. Yeah. So I think that she had more of a story than that meets the eye, but I am not diminishing in any way her role in this murder. So, Kath, Marcellus Drummer wanted his own trial separate and apart from Austin and Garcia. So there were actually two trials in this case where Katrina Fritz testified. And Marcellus, who was the last arrested, went to trial really quickly. Yeah. He was arrested in March of 2014 and his trial started in October of 2014. So at Marcellus's 2014 trial, Katrina was a star witness. After more than a week of testimony, Marcellus was convicted on November 4th, 2014, of first-degree murder while robbing a home. Three weeks later, Judge Michelle McKay McCoy sentenced Marcellus to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, Kath, I think you're probably well-known, some would say legendary, for your dislike of douchey prosecutors. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, they bug me. All right, this one's going to bug you even more, and I'm dedicating this next part to you. After the sentence was handed down, Deputy District Attorney Kevin Smith said, quote, Drummer's decision to honor his gang's motto of money over everything by tattooing Moet, M-O-E-T, on his arm led to his decision to care more about money than Ravish Kumar's life and ultimately led to the letters R.I.P. being placed on the tombstone of Ravish Kumra. But no, Deputy D.A. Smith wasn't done. The jury added four more letters to the defendant. L-W-O-P, for life without the possibility of parole, for his reckless disregard for Mr. Coomer's life and the incredible devastation that this has wrought on all of Mr. Coomer's family and friends. End quote. You know, he's like, I know the cameras are going to come to me and this is what I'm going to say. And I bet he practiced in the mirror over and over and over. And was totally patting himself on the back for the cleverness that he thought the statement was. Totally. But I do have to say for Ravi's family... I'm very happy that they got justice in a very short amount of time as far as Marcellus Drummer goes. Right. You know, like you said, from arrest to conviction, that's lightning speed in criminal. You know what I mean? So as a prosecutor, Deputy D.A. Smith is great. As a media spokesperson. As a spokesmodel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He needs improvement. Exactly. Javier Garcia and D'Angelo Austin were tried together and trial began in Santa Clara County on April 18th, 2016, three and a half years after the murder of Ravi Kumra. And Katrina Fritz, we have not mentioned it up until this point, was D'Angelo Austin's older 
sister. Dang. Yes. So Katrina had taken her brother, D'Angelo Austin, on two or three occasions to the Kumra residence when he was a teen. So he understood perfectly well the lifestyle that the Kumras lived. According to a May 9, 2014 article, Katrina testified that she started working as a prostitute at the age of 13 in Oakland, California, at the behest of her mother. That's awful. Isn't that awful? It's so common. These young women who are engaged in prostitution as adults often began as minors. It is the saddest thing. And can you imagine your mom suggesting it? No. Whew. Honestly, Kath, let's call it what it is. It's human trafficking. Anyway, so Ravi Kumra hired Katrina as a prostitute in 1999 when she was 19 years old and remained a client until about 2011, a year before his death. At both trials, Katrina Fritz gave the jury the sordid details that led to Ravi's murder. According to court records, between 1999 and 2011, Katrina visited Ravi probably hundreds of times at his home in Monte Serino. Katrina estimated that she received hundreds of thousands of dollars and three cars over the years. She was familiar with the layout of his house, and she knew that the Kumras typically left their doors unlocked. You know, Kath, one of the other things I read is that in the computer downloads that the police did after they had taken Robbie's computer, they actually saw that he had given Katrina $30,000 within the last month or so to help her buy a house. Within the month prior to his murder? Correct. Oh, wow. I didn't even see that. Katrina last saw Ravi about a year before the robbery. Shortly after Thanksgiving in 2012, which was about a week before the murder, Austin called Katrina and asked her if she was still involved with Ravi and whether he had money and jewelry at the house. Austin said he was thinking of going there, which Katrina understood to mean Austin was thinking of robbing him. Katrina did not want her brother to do it, but Austin assured her it would be okay. And Kath, at one point in the testimony, Katrina said that she offered to call or visit Ravi to take him out of the house so that Austin and his friends could go and rob him. But Austin was dead set against it because he didn't want her to be linked in any way to what was going to happen. As we mentioned, it had been about a year since Katrina had seen Ravi, and Austin knew that it would set off alarm bells to Ravi if they came back and he'd been robbed. Right. After the conversation just before Thanksgiving, Austin called Katrina from Monte Serino and asked for directions to the Coomer's home. Cell phone records confirmed that Austin's phone was in the vicinity of the Coomer's house in the early afternoon of November 29, 2012, the day of the home invasion. Later that day, Austin called Katrina and asked for a drawing of the home's layout, which she provided. Around 10 p.m., Austin called Katrina and said he was at the house and was watching Ravi, who had been drinking alcohol and watching the news. Because that's what you do. Sometimes you need alcohol to watch the news. <laughs> exactly. Always. <laughs> Austin told her he was about to enter the house and Katrina told her brother to be careful and to stop calling her phone. According to court records, in the morning after the crime, Katrina heard a TV news report about a home invasion homicide in Monte Serino. She immediately thought of Ravi and contacted Austin and agreed to meet for brunch in Berkeley. Austin arrived at the restaurant with his girlfriend as well as Marcellus Drummer. Katrina asked Drummer what happened, and he said, shit went bad. And if that's not the understatement <laughs> of the year, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> Maybe he just wasn't a very eloquent man. <laughs> but he knew how to communicate a direct message. Exactly. Short and to the point. <laughs> exactly. 
Austin told Katrina that her render was screaming, saying, whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. That's an interesting statement to make. I agree. Drummer said he had not done anything at the house and just sat there watching Ravi and Harinder. Austin admitted that he knew that Ravi had died. Katrina asked if anything was left at the house that could tie them to the crime, and Austin said they got rid of everything, including gloves, clothes, and a crowbar. Do you think he actually thought they took the gloves with them? I can't imagine. That pile of gloves in the sink was from more than one person. Yes. Austin told his sister that if anything happened, they would confess and Katrina would not have to go to jail. Austin also told Katrina they pawned the stolen items at a pawn shop in San Francisco. At a later time, Austin gave Katrina $40,000 to hide for him. And at some point after giving her this money, he called Katrina and asked her to check on whether the name Javier Garcia was listed on the Santa Clara County's online inmate locator. This was the first time Katrina heard Garcia's name. She told her brother that the inmate locator said Garcia was in custody for murder. Katrina asked her brother whether this had anything to do with that thing, and Austin said yes. And by the way, crooks totally look at the inmate locators. Like if there's a co-conspirator or something, they always check the inmate locators. If an officer is saying, you know, hey, we arrested your friend or hey, we arrested your mother or whatever it is, they always check the inmate locators just to see if somebody with that name is in jail. Somebody I met in high school became a detective and was telling me when he was working human trafficking about how he was trying to set up a pimp by using one of his victims of sex trafficking to get on a phone call, which was recorded. And in this phone call, she said, you know, my mom's in jail and blah, 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 blah. And she was trying to, you know, she was concocting a story. And the pimp's question was, well, what's your mother's name? And so the detective immediately knew, oh, my gosh, he's going to check the inmate locator and had to quickly get permission to create a fake inmate with the name that the trafficking victim had given him. Smart. Yeah. Just in case the guy checked, which he did. Oh, nice. Yeah. Also testifying at trial for the prosecution was pathologist Dr. Michelle Jordan, who performed the autopsy on Ravi. Dr. Jordan concluded that the manner of Ravi's death was homicide and that the cause of his death was probable asphyxia due to suffocation by the duct tape over his mouth. Dr. Jordan explained that Ravi had an enlarged, very, very bad heart. Because enlarged hearts require more oxygen, the tape over Ravi's mouth, his obstructed nasal passages, and the physiological stress and terror of the crime would have placed additional stress on Robbie's diseased heart. I truly can't imagine what this man went through. Santa Clara County criminalist Mehmet testified at trial that DNA analysis of the crime scene showed multiple contributors, mostly from Harinder and Ravi Kumra. However, between the tape, the latex gloves, the latex glove box the cardboard tape roll, and Robbie's hands, all three defendants' DNA was at the crime scene. Criminalist Mehmet also tested the DNA against the profiles of approximately 20 known criminals, including Javier Garcia's cousin, Eddie Bo Rodriguez. However, no hits came back. Cell phone expert Jim Cook testified that Garcia's and Austin's cell phones were in the area of the Kumra residence on the night of the murder. And between November 25, 2012, through December 8, 2012, there were over 150 calls and texts between Austin's phone and Garcia's phone. More specifically, on the night of the crime, there were 10 calls between Austin and Garcia and 20 calls between Austin and his sister Katrina. 
Drummer's cell phone was also in the vicinity of the crime scene at the time of the incident. Oakland police officer Daniel Bruce testified as an expert on Oakland's criminal street gangs in order to support the enhancement allegations that the murder was committed in furtherance of gang activities. Bruce testified that Austin and Drummer were members of the ENT gang at the time of Ravi Kumra's murder. He also testified that Garcia was a member of the Ghost Town gang and the ENT gang and explained that Ghost Town is aligned with ENT and it is possible to be a member of two gangs. One of the interesting things is that D'Angelo Austin testified that he started ENT, okay? He testified on the stand that he didn't consider it to be a gang. It was more a tribute to three of his friends who had died in 2010 from gang violence. I believe they were all shot in a car at the same time. One of his friends was named Edward, one was named Nario, and T was for his third friend's nickname Taliban. And so he started this ENT group in 2010, and two years later, by the time Ravi is murdered, it is actually considered a gang. So what was interesting was that at Garcia's and Austin's trial, both of them testified in their own defense. That's shocking. I know. Garcia basically said, look, I met Austin three months before the murder through my cousin. What was the cousin's name again? Eddie Bo Rodriguez. That's right. Eddie Bo. I met him through my cousin, Eddie Bo. So Garcia says that he would hang out at his cousin's house prior to the murder and would package drugs for sale and he would play video games. Garcia says on November 29th, which was the night of the home invasion, he was at his cousin's house, Eddie Bo. He says that Eddie Bo tells him, hey, Garcia, cuz my cell phone's on the fritz. Can I take yours? Garcia says, sure, gives his cousin his cell phone. And he sees his cousin leave with a cell phone and the box of latex gloves that they use when they are packaging drugs. So Garcia says that the next day he sees his cousin. He has no idea whatsoever, you know, he's done in the preceding 24 hours. Garcia gets his phone back and then he's shocked to be arrested on December 27th. So he blames everything on his cousin, Eddie Bo Rodriguez, who conveniently died in 2013, three years before the trial. So Austin takes the stand and Austin testified that he organized the home invasion robbery at the Coomer's residence. He testified that he did it to get money for his family. He said he was not in any gang. And by the way, Garcia said the same thing. Garcia said he was not a gang member. Mm, they never are. Exactly. So Austin essentially admitted to a bunch of stuff and he confirmed a lot of what his sister Katrina had testified to. What he said was, I never intended for Ravi to die. I never intended to have him harmed. And I am not the one who placed the tape over his mouth. And one thing that is significant is there was nothing specifically identified in the court records, Kath, that the piece of tape placed over Ravi's mouth, the primary blocking piece of tape, shall we say, had any DNA on it. Oh, interesting. Right. So Austin said, I told my sister I wasn't going to hurt him. I intended not to have him hurt. And it wasn't me. Okay. So what's interesting about Austin's testimony is the prosecutor, who was probably salivating that he was actually on the stand making all these admissions, said, who was with you? And Austin wouldn't say. He said, I don't recall. Snitches get stitches. Yeah. And the prosecutor's like, who was with you? And he's like, I don't recall. And the judge turns and goes, I don't believe you. Answer the question. He's like, I don't recall. And he wouldn't say who he was with. He's just simply said, I was with other male individuals. 
So the prosecutor gets upset. He's angry and he wants to strike all of Austin's testimony. And then he walks back on that request. Well, yeah, because Austin admitted to doing all those things. Exactly. Admitted to all these things. But the defense attorney for Garcia got a jury instruction that said, you may not consider the testimony of D'Angelo Austin against Garcia because Austin didn't implicate anyone. The jury was not allowed to presume that Garcia was one of the people not mentioned. On June 17, 2016, the jury found Javier Garcia guilty of first-degree murder, robbery, misdemeanor battery as a lesser-included offense of assault with a deadly weapon, making criminal threats, and two counts of false imprisonment. Ultimately, the jury did not find Garcia's gang enhancement was proven. That same day, the jury found Austin guilty of first-degree murder, robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, making criminal threats, and both counts of false imprisonment. The jury also found true the robbery murder special circumstance allegation and the gang allegations as to all counts. Marcellus Drummer is at the California State Prison Solano and is serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Javier Garcia is serving his sentence at the High Desert State Prison. He will be eligible to apply for parole beginning in June of 2036. D'Angelo Austin is serving life without the possibility of parole at Salinas Valley State Prison. So our downloads are steadily on the rise, and it's because of you guys. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for downloading us. It actually helps us in so many ways. And if you haven't left us a review on Apple, please do so. Or Spotify. Only if it's going to be nice, though. Exactly. <laughs> we don't want to hear it if it's nasty. <laughs> others to listen to us too. Exactly. <laughs> but thanks so much. We totally appreciate you guys. And if you're not following us on social media, please do so at Killer Destinations Podcast. On Instagram and Facebook. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I was supposed to say that. <laughs> Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 